Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. It's another episode of In the Landscape. And I almost started this by saying it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. It's just, (laughs) forgive me, it's just that time of year. And today is a special holiday episode. But we thought we would do a little bit of a twist on the holidays as it relates to us and our landscape enthusiasm and, you know, the theme of the podcast. So I am one of your hosts. I'm Kate Sadler, and I'm here with the other host of this program, Charles Sadler. Good to be here. Hi, Charles. Happy holidays all around. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) here in North America, of course, the holidays of Thanksgiving have just come and gone. Um, Well, I should say the United States, Canada, all due respect, has a Thanksgiving, but it's a different date. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. we have in our household, we do celebrate Christmas. So that's coming up for us. Of course, there's Hanukkah, which is a popular celebration amongst our Jewish friends here in America. And it's exciting to think about the holidays in terms of plants Mm -hmm. because they are such a present part of the holidays. I suppose food might be the other really big kind of cultural thing through theme of holidays from around the world. But for us, of course, it's plants. And so with travel, you notice that when you travel, you get off an airplane or a bus or a boat, things often look different. And so that look, it could be the architecture, it's the plants and the food. I mean, those might be sights, sounds, smells, tastes. And so plants are something that you can bring back home with you. Food is something that you can bring back home with you. You're not actually going to bring architecture you know, I mean, you could bring a Mediterranean home back to New England, but, but the plants really do travel very well. And that's, I mean, why, in a way, plants have traveled with people as people have migrated from one country to another, even one continent to another, they brought plants with them. Plants that had meaning it could be plants to sustain themselves. So that's a, it's a good reason why plants have become such an integral part of, I would say, almost every major holiday around the globe. So, of course, we're not going to talk from the perspective of cultural anthropologists or firsthand experts of a lot of traditions because we have our family holidays and we respect those that others celebrate. But we did think it would be an interesting take to look at how some of these holiday plants are cultivated and also talk about whether one can do the cultivation on one's own. So, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of our listeners are landscape enthusiasts, gardeners. Landscape professionals. Exactly. So if you wanted to have a Christmas tree, for example, that you grew yourself, what are your options? Would it make sense to wait 10 to 15 years for it to reach, you know, a reasonable size to cut it down? By the same token, we'll talk a little about the citrus trees that are common for Lunar New Year. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you make that a part of your home if you'd like to again, kind of participate in your own holiday in that organic way that plants mm-hmm. provide. And they're cheerful too. I mean, boy, having something that's bright, colorful, I mean, there's the taste. Some of these plants have edible components. There's the fragrance is often a pretty big component. Oh, I picked. will say those, some of the artificial trees that have been produced now are starting to really get the look of the Christmas tree, but there's nothing quite like the scent of a Christmas tree. That's you know, a good place must, to start, really, right? Yeah. To get into like Christmas trees. Yes. Yeah, so, so that is, you know, kind of a ubiquitous holiday item here in the United States this time of year. 
you see them in the suburbs of California. You could go to a Christmas tree lot and pick them up or, you know, go out to a farm and cut them down. One of my favorite things about New York City is the Christmas tree stand essentially on the side of the road. So you'd be walking home along Broadway and there'd be a van with the Christmas lights outside and they just stack the trees and wreaths up right there. And somebody's keeping warm inside the van until someone comes by to buy a tree and take it to their apartment. I mean, just- It's so narrow. I mean, it's a sidewalk, which is maybe as 15 feet wide. Manhattan sidewalks are big. Yeah, they are. They're designed to accommodate a lot of people. I mean, so it's a narrow area. So it really- the fragrance, you're yeah. sort of this corridor, there's like a storefront or yes. an office building. And then let's say it's 15 feet. So you have a, maybe a 10 foot sidewalk or eight feet and the balance another eight feet or 10 feet is Christmas tree. So it's, you're really in the spirit. Mm. I mean, you smell it, that there's, it's, there's often wreaths. I walked through one of those. It was set up actually for a film. And so it was like the middle of, I don't know, September and the tree stand was set up and it's immediately evocative. It's just such a a treat. So if you're in the city for the holidays and going to see the big, big tree Mm -hmm. at Rockefeller Center, right? you know, maybe take a walk on one of the side streets and see if you can find some of these tree stands because they are, they're very special, special part of New York Christmas. What about that tree at Rockefeller Center? Is that a real tree? It is. Yeah. So that, I mean, the history that's often documented, I mean, like some years ago, I was I'm still aware of Metro Hort, which is a horticultural group for professionals in New York City and the greater region. But there was a gentleman who, I'll have to look up his name, but he was Mr. Rockefeller Christmas Tree. And he, he was a part of this Metro Hort you know, group of professionals, which was people from Parks Department, Landscape Architects, and everybody in between. And his job was the procurement of the Rockefeller Christmas Tree. And they would They'd get in a helicopter and they would, and, and automobiles, but a helicopter and they would go to the greater New York City, like maybe I'm going to guess like within a hundred miles of New York City. And they would be flying, looking for trees on people's regular old suburban properties, which looked magnificent. And so it, it would often be growing in full sun. So there were not other trees around it. And it's almost always a Norway spruce, which is, that's the same plant when you think of the black forest in Germany and other than that whole region, that's the Norway spruce. So it's very dark, evergreen. The branches are pendulous. So they, they droop down and then at the bottom, they start to curve back up and okay, it's very yeah. large, very quickly. So it's, I'm going to guess it's normally about 90 feet tall or so. And they're readily available. I mean, they're grown in the suburbs. <laughs> Now, do people get paid for the tree that gets cut down? I don't believe so. Really? I mean, I I could be wrong, but I think it's like being chosen for a talent. It's like it's such an honor to be picked. And there's a big cost to cut it down. And they they very carefully tie the lower branches up, like almost like I think of of an umbrella, how that folds down. Well, it's almost like a reverse umbrella. They fold the lower branches up and they tie them very carefully. And it comes in on a flatbed truck. And then I think it's a crane that lifts it. Wow, what a big production. I mean, of course, a fabulous holiday symbol in the city, uh, you know, midtown Manhattan this time of year. So um, that's also special. But if one of our listeners, I don't know, it would be fun to know somebody who'd had their tree picked out. I bet it's the kind of thing that makes it onto Facebook. It's it's in the paper and it's often, it could be someone in New Canaan, Connecticut, or it could be Bridgehampton or Teaneck, New Jersey. Sure. And the person who was 
like on this selection committee when he passed away, which when I was active in this New York City group when he did, which was oh, quite a while ago, it was probably a dozen years ago or 10 years ago, they planted a spruce in his honor in Central Park. Oh, that's sweet. And it was a big, you know, there's like, I think there's a bench as a memorial to him, you know, because he was really like a part Very of the culture. Cool. Absolutely. So when we go to pick out our Christmas tree, there's a few varieties. You know, you've mentioned this Norway spruce is, is popular for the big, big trees. Are there kinds that are more su- successful than others, more sustainable? I know aesthetics has a lot to do with it, but in terms of just planting a tree, let's say you wanted to do a few in your backyard or even start your own Christmas tree farm. Because you were observing it's sort of a cottage industry. Right. And, and then some places, if you have a little bit of agriculture happening on your property, you get, I don't know, tax breaks or something. So right. what if you wanted to go into the tree farm business and serve your local community? You know, they're in, I mean, I know New York State quite well. And near Albany, there's a small town, Saratoga. And so in that, there's a horse race. That's a big deal every year. In that vicinity, there's a New York State nursery. and so New York State more or less subsidizes, encourages the agricultural farming of Christmas trees. So you can purchase, the trees are almost free. They're you know, very small seedlings, and there would be types that would be advantageous for Christmas trees. There's information to do it. The trees are almost free. And I imagine there's tax credits. There's agricultural, if, depending how your property is zoned. So it's, they try to make it easy. And it is a cottage and it's seasonal. So you have areas where the land is not that valuable. You plant these trees, which is almost no labor. And then they appreciate in value from almost nothing to quite a bit. And when we went to cut down trees, because we've done this tradition several years in a row now, where we went to select a tree, they shape them in a very special way. It was special to me. Oh, right. And we learned that my brother did that as a forestry student, as a summer job, where you have a machete. Like, I mean, if you were like a pirate, imagine like a very <laughs> large sword and college kids, local kids are walking down the roads in the summer and it's maybe about like at least three cuts, maybe five cuts. You're starting at the top of the tree and any branches that stick out with a machete, you're cutting them off. So it's, I mean, you're spending just a matter of seconds for each tree and you're doing, I mean, these farms have like the large ones that have tens of thousands of trees. Wow, that seems like a fun, fun summer job anticipating the holidays. And I will also say that going to the Christmas tree farm with a certified arborist to cut it down has always been, we used to go with my mom when we were younger and it was a bit of a challenge to get the right angle. And you Mm. use the saws that are sort of provided by the farm and you're kind of hacking away at this poor tree. But you you always get down there and just (laughs) have some really expert technique. When it comes to getting our tree oh, up. I think up. I brought my own saw before. Yes. Yep. Time, these are saws they use like once a year. The tools. They're the not gloves. the sharpest. No. Well, you're always ready to go. So that's always been great. So that's the Christmas tree. I mean, there are a lot of other adornments. And of course, we should observe that the Christmas tree is older than just the, the Christian tradition. That it's really this concept, I think, of greening a space in the winter. If you experience mm-hmm. winter as kind of an intense, cold, dormant season for the rest of the wildlife outside. And so there's evergreen boughs that are often brought into the home. And really, this is something that can be done with or without any specific religious association. Um, It can just be a nice tradition for the winter solstice, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And you were mentioning, which had never occurred to me, 
that kind of like there are flower markets, there's actually like cuttings markets right, or right. growers who are actually producing what, what kinds of cuttings might they be developing? Well, if there were flowers, it'd be like a cut flower market. And so these are, I guess I'd call it like ornamental cuttings. So you have red twig dogwood, so branches that are red in the winter with no leaves. Those are often, those are popular. Those could be in a vase, in a planter. That same dogwood comes in like a gold branch. And there are a winterberry holly. So it's a, in the summer, it looks like a green bush. It loses its leaves. And then what remains are, it's often very dense, covered with red berries. And so those, some of the, the wholesale nurseries that I work with, that's like a side market for them, where it could be, they'd have like what they call like a parent plant, where it'd be a giant, you know, row of bushes. And all they do every year, they cut branches from those. So it's not harvested. The final product would be the branches, not the, not the whole plant. Interesting. And so are nurseries a good place to visit during the holidays to take a look at? Because mm-hmm. obviously decor is everywhere. I mean, you can go into like any store, really. A lot of it is fake, I guess, for lack of, I mean, that's honest. It's, it's fake, you know, mm-hmm. evergreen. And so if you wanted to get the real, the real deal, it sounds like your nursery might be a good place to go. Right, correct. There's, in the, it's similar to landscape design. So there'd be retail settings, a good, a good local retail nursery would probably have these cuttings or you could ask. I mean, I was just at some, at a wholesalers and for trees here in Texas. And they were saying, if, if we don't have what you want, we can order it. So if there's something you have in mind, and that would be often true of a retailer. It's say, you know, I want, we're having a big party. I want five boughs of red twig branches. And if you did it early enough, they probably could order it. Even though they're not traditional florists, it's that same sort of floral network where they're, let's say they order a Christmas cactus and they would order some of these cuttings plants like uh, boxwood cuttings also. Those are popular for wreaths. Well, you may, you actually pruned a boxwood one year and I made a small boxwood wreath out of it, which was fine. It actually, I didn't, I don't think I had any, they, you know, they may have had the desiccant spray on them already, but they didn't, they stayed green for quite a long time. And yet mm-hmm. it was a, a fresh wreath of sorts. So that went fairly well, you know, I had the wire form and kind of like a DIY wreath. But boxwood are very popular for different topiary. And, and again, not just for the holidays, but throughout the year. How do you do those small shapes in the boxes or the, the little, you know, boxwood, quote unquote, Christmas tree? Well, let's see, you know, starting out with the components, it's often not what it appears. So for it to look full, let's say you have like a, like a rectangular planter, like a window box, like maybe that's going to be a centerpiece. And you wanted, uh, like, let's say three or five small boxes within that. So you want to make sure that there's drainage and that there's, a, that there's a saucer so when you water it, it doesn't damage any furniture. If I was doing it, I probably would buy plants that were a little, the foliage was bigger than, than the end result. And then that way you could put them in the planter and then shape them. You know, plants often have a more favorable side and then maybe one side is, is more bare. So once you get them all positioned, then you can do some pruning. If you started out with plants that were the right size to start with, they might not look so full. And they're not going to grow at all. They're going to just sit there. Oh, well, that's good. That's a good tip to know. So mm. they're really, it's almost like not at all like bonsai, like <laughs> in, in the extreme, but 
but a little bit like that concept where the, the size of the dish and the sort of causes the growth to diminish. Right. It's going to just sit there and it's like a dormant season, you know, more or less. Um, Can you take those out and put them in your garden after the season is over? Uh, it's possible. Plants that are like a temperate season plants that would grow outside where they'd experience a winter. Being inside with central heating is like detrimental. It's like dry. The air is very dry. The humidity is very low compared to what it would be outside. So plants often don't make it through the winter if it's an ornamental. But if you have it in mind that it might not make it, but you'll enjoy it for that season, like you would a, a cut flower. Or what's the best is if you have a room that is unheated or heated at a very minimal level. Maybe it's like a sunroom or an entry foyer. That would be great. So it's not, let's say it's like 60 degrees Fahrenheit or so, or 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Plants like that would love, that would be a great condition for them. When it's 72 Fahrenheit, very low humidity and warm air being blown on, that's, that it's probably going to kill them. Oh, okay. Well, good to know. And, you know, there is the, the somewhat bittersweet element of these cuttings and Christmas trees and whatnot that they don't necessarily survive the season. And we, you know, oh, so we have that great New York tradition of picking up the tree, but then there's the sad New York tradition of seeing them on the sidewalk when the season is over. And, you know, you can make a decision about whether you want to cut down a live tree every year. And perhaps if you don't, I do know they have live trees for sale, but I suppose you'd want to have a plan for where to plant it once the season was over, or it's not going to stay alive for long. It's certainly, I mean, would it in the plant, in the pot that it comes in or? I mean, if you bought a, an evergreen tree and it was in a pot and it was an unheated area or if it was on your front steps, front walk, outside, that it would be fine there. Oh. If you brought it all the way inside to a heated room, no, it's not probably would not make it. Do you think it can last for the Christmas season so that you can have it in the house decorated and then you get it outside to kind of rehab it? With a central heating, probably not. Really? Yeah. Oh. It's, it's really not. So it's kind of the myth of the live Christmas tree as right. well. It's I mean, just not going to work out. It would be like taking a tropical plant and putting it outside in the winter. It's like almost zero tolerance. Like it's, mm. I always love numbers. So when you look up Christmas tree farms for the U.S., it says there's about 15,000 Christmas tree farms. Hmm. And that I was surprised they said, so the average tree is going to be about six to seven feet tall, which that sounds about right. And it grows. I was surprised that they're saying it gets to that height in about four years. Great. And just to get our attributions correct, that is the National Christmas Tree Association? Correct, right. At, which is at realchristmastree.org? Correct. Okay, um, so we'll... Realchristmastrees.org, yes. Yeah, we could put that in our show notes. It's, it's a group that's advocating this growth and the jobs that are created, you know, the tradition that's created when you go to, to, to get your Christmas trees. I did see a post from the, what was it, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation that was advising folks to check carefully their trees to see if lanternfly eggs were on them. So you could go to the DEC's post for New York state, even if you're out of state, because these things move across borders. They don't, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they don't know that they're in New York or New Jersey, to be honest, and take a look at the picture because I think that helps with the identification. Of course, are there other things we should be aware of when we're cutting down and transporting trees across potentially state lines or, you know, even from one environment into another. If it's a live tree, 
I mean, California has lots of regulations. So that California is like a special entity, really. If it's a live tree, to my knowledge, there is not alerts I mean, that are widespread. What is dangerous is transporting deadwood. So transporting firewood that harbors insects. And those insects can have emerald ash borer, you know, lots of really detrimental pests could be in firewood. So don't transplant firewood. If you have firewood at one property, you know, leave it there is, is always the mantra. Oh, I was not aware of that. So, all right, I'll leave my firewood at home next time. Very good. So, of course, the Christmas tree is is not the only holiday tree of importance the world over. You know, trees are just so important to human existence in general that they're celebrated in a lot of different cultures. And you were sort of reminiscing about your trip to Hong Kong, which was during the Lunar New Year, and the presence of citrus trees. And of course, there are a lot of plants we could focus on. So we're just going to stick with trees for the most part today because of your expertise. So what is entailed in growing citrus? And is it feasible? I mean, we're here right now in Texas and orange trees seem to grow rather large. You know, is this a plant that you can espalier? Is this something that you can grow in a container if you want to have your citrus ready to go for prosperity in the new year? Well, it'll be similar like the, you know, poinsettia is a popular plant. Some of these plants are Christmas cactus. And so this, a kumquat or a citrus tree that's in a planter, it'd be similar in that if you want it to look beautiful, you buy it or like an orchid is similar where it's, it's grown in a greenhouse by professionals. And that's all they're doing is making these beautiful plants. And then you get it home and it never <laughs> blooms again. It might never be that. <laughs> Just the- so the expectation It's like having a delicious meal. You enjoy it fully, and then it it does come to an end. So I remember being in Asia, you know, traveling throughout Asia and different countries, and it was that Lunar New Year. It goes on. I think it's like six. It's a six-week extended holiday where the average family would would take a trip within that, like take a holiday within that period. So everywhere you went, from four-star hotels down to very humble. Uh, mom and pop bakeries, everything they would have some kind of a of a symbolic planting outside, and so the the citrus of the kumquat is one of the most favorites, and it's I think it symbolizes prosperity, and I mean I think the folk tradition is to have it near the door, so that's also advantageous for prosperity. Even the kumquat, as small as it is, that wouldn't be something that you could keep sustain in a container. If the climate was right, I think. Yeah, maybe to back up. So have it look as beautiful as when you bought it. That's like a temporary, like a cut flower, practically. The plant that, it, the pot that it comes in, if it was put into a larger pot and the temperature was right and there was some care, so you could look up if there's any, you know, pests that are susceptible to have had enough sunlight. I mean, you do see those when you travel throughout Asia that people grow it. The average person grows those in their garden, in a pot or, or in the, in the ground. It's never going to look quite as beautiful. And then it's to grow. Well, what is it that they do? I mean, you say that, but, you know, there are people who have prized rose bushes or, mm-hmm. or people hire you to make sure their yards look beautiful. But what is the technique that gets it to look beautiful? Is it like aggressive pruning so that things pop out in a certain way? Because if there was a technique that was used once, I imagine if you really, really wanted to replicate it, there would be a way. You're so, right. So it'd be... I mean, it'd be similar to growing a bonsai or boxwood in a planter. So it's make sure it, it's going to need to be fertilized. And some plants need uh, quite a bit of fertilizer at the right time. Like roses need to be pruned at a certain time, fertilized at a certain time. 
I need to be treated for pests at a certain time. The watering condition, it needs air circulation. That's often the enemy of, of potted plants, that when there's dead air, then they get insects or other things. If you attended to it, like you would a pet, if you get that, that amount of attention, you could, it could look as, almost as good as when you bought it. But just to put it there like you would like an umbrella and just to think it's going to, it's never going <laughs> to look that good if, if, it's not, if it's not attended to. Now, just because we mentioned espalier in every episode, we wouldn't want to go another episode <laughs> without it. Is it. Are citrus the kind of plant that you can espalier or is it different the way they grow? It is possible. I mean, occasionally you see it. I mean, some of the citrus have large thorns. Some of them, like the peach tree, grows irregularly. So that's very hard to espalier. The apple, the pear grows very regularly. It's easy to train. So there, there'd be types of citrus, like the smaller, like the kumquat. The intervals between one branch node and the next are smaller. So there'd be, that would be easier to train into a smaller area. Where some of the citrus has it's you know gets these very tangled thorny branches and it's irregular, but by picking the right variety and at some of the better nurseries, the growers they would offer plants that would be easier to that might be offered as an espalier or or a young plant and you could train that. One other tree that we came across essentially as we were talking about doing this episode is the willow, which is really an important tree you found for some of your Jewish clients to plant a willow tree. It's used in the sort of fall festival Sukkot, which Mm -hmm. I believe sort of remembers the Israelites, the sheltering of them in the desert. And so Uh it's this multi-day festival. Again, if you've ever been in Manhattan, you'll see these little shelters kind of set up. Oh, right. And it's a really fun way to sort of be a participant in that season, even if you're mm-hmm. not Jewish. That's it's like the observation of the festival as it's happening, kind of out out and about in the neighborhood, which is really fun. You know, I had clients like that reminds me. I think it was in Connecticut that were had a Jewish faith practice, you know, practiced. And I remember we were designing a patio, and the patio area needed to be a certain size to for this holiday tent, and that was. You know, on enough lawn, but the but the patio, the paved area, it was quite the tent. It was a very specific size that they wanted, like it was you know twelve by fifteen feet or something. And I remember, so that's always exciting, you know, where these cultural traditions I may or may not be aware of, and then how that works into design, and that it's it always comes down to the program. You know, every culture has traditions in a way. It's like manifested by design. Yeah, yeah, so cool. These holidays and festivals are such a powerful kind of representation of the program, like what the program is going to be for your garden. Like we might anticipate, oh, we'll have like a wedding or a family gathering. But if you think specifically about your holiday traditions, it can really make that program come alive because we have that almost annual, you know, repetition to kind of reinforce the traditions. It's a marking of the season. So if you wanted to plant a willow tree so that you had access to the fronds for, for your tradition, I know it's also a part of American folk tradition and what is the willow tree? Is it tough to plant? You know, it's very, very versatile. It's not the longest lived. So an oak Hmm. tree would be very, it grows conservatively. Most oaks, it grows slowly. It lives a long time, but it takes a long time to mature. The willow would be almost the opposite of that. It grows very quickly. Most willows, when people think of there's or myself, I think of like a weeping willow and someone says a willow tree. 
you know, growing, there's the Boston Commons or there's all kinds of literature or poems that depict willows and there's parks in Europe. So the weeping willow, it grows quickly. The leaves are some of the first leaves to come out in the spring. And even the branches have a beautiful color in the winter. So it's like gold. It's on many willows, it's a gold. So it looks like this gold waterfall, more or less, you know, this structure. And I wouldn't be, I wouldn't want to be presumptuous about how it's interpreted in the Jewish faith, but it does, it sounds almost like the, the conception of the evergreen in the far Northern climates where there's this, like the first blush of spring, it's the first one to come back to life or the fruit, you know, the heavy laden fruit branches of the citrus tree for the lunar new year. There's a Mm -hmm. lot kind of happening in the fall and winter and spring tradition here in the Northern hemisphere that seems to be represented by these plants. So something that might be interesting on a personal level would be to see how that's reflected in the Southern hemisphere and which Mm -hmm. plants are kind of used to mirror the seasons there. You're right. And the willow, it's one of the last to drop its leaves too. So it holds the leaves, I mean, a very long, in a temperate climate, a lot lot of the year. Now it likes water, right? Right. So it doesn't need water, but it will. um, And there's plants that are wetland dependent. They will only grow where it's wet. So that wouldn't be the case for a willow, but it thrives where it's wet. It can grow where it's very wet. So that's our little mini survey of holiday trees. Uh, <laughs> we realize it wasn't entirely comprehensive. And of course, we always invite feedback for any of our social media sites or even an email. If there's more that you know about trees, connect with us, post on our Facebook page in the, you know, in the landscape, or send us an email if you want us to cover something else. It's just nice to think about the landscape is supporting our traditions, that it's, there's this really rich interplay that there are people who make in the landscape industry who make a living, you know, supporting these traditions. And so it's, I've talked a lot about the ecosystem on this podcast, but it's this little ecosystem that is rewarding and, you know, sustaining us all on spiritual and <laughs> maybe even financial levels, depending mm-hmm. on where we are in that ecosystem. So it's, it's a nice thought, I think, heading into, into our holiday season. You know, just to look ahead, because you have mentioned cut flowers quite a bit, and we have on February 14th, Valentine's Day is celebrated by some, and one of the big gifts is the long stem rose. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, not being a rose expert myself by any stretch, I know that surprises our listeners, how did they get them so long? Like, what's the long stem technique? Do you know? Well, I mean, I've occasionally, I've been to flower growers. You know, I'm not the, uh, a friend actually from high school is like the director of a rose plantation, more or less, which I think is in, in the Lima area, Peru. So it's a certain climate and you're, imagine if you, if you shear a plant, it gets very bushy and you get a lot of foliage or flowers. If you don't do that, you're encouraging a lot, like more or less like the length. So for a long stem rose, you would encourage, there would be a bud emerging and you would encourage that to keep growing and growing and growing. I could be wrong about this, but it's more or less in the tea rose family. And it it should be an old fashioned rose where it'd be, you get a long stem as opposed to a shrub rose where you would have, it would be bushy and a lot of small, a lot of small flowers. (laughs) So the con, you know, we have the Christmas trees that New York state is basically practically giving away that you could, you could start your own little farm 
And then we have this intensive practice of growing roses, which you might be hard pressed to yield a dozen long stem roses every year for Valentine's Day, even if you tried really hard. So it just, there's sometimes like a great cost associated with plants in the marketplace. And Mm -hmm. you wonder, is the long stem rose bunch worth it? But if you have to go all the way to Lima, Peru to grow them, and then you have this like specialized pruning to get them leggy, you know, buy them in the market. It's going to save you time and probably money in the long run. Yeah, I mean, what, maybe one trend to have to produce products that are a certain aesthetic and that it's profitable. There's, it's like a high level of specialization and you're doing that on a very large, uh, on a large, a large quantity. So that's so doing things on the home garden level, your expectations are low. You won't be disappointed. But when they, you know, they grow these perfect roses or perfect avocado mm-hmm. or a perfect Christmas tree or kumquat. And then there's years where like a certain farm might have a big loss. Like they didn't mm-hmm. make any money. They had the weather or the irrigation or there was a frost. Yeah, we talked about the edible garden in our last episode and the thought that you know, unless it's really, really intensive, your yield may not be that great because the slugs may invade or the, you know, it's, I mean, it's that age old sort of like human conundrum when it comes to growing crops that some mm-hmm. years they fail. And what a, I don't know if they have insurance for those years these days. Or, you do. Yeah. I mean, that like farmers, yeah. there's companies called farmers insurance. You're maybe. right. Oh, of course. So like some of the, some of the earliest insurance as I understand it was for farmers. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And there's still government loans. So you're taking a loan out against your future profitability. And that's like, because you just couldn't afford to buy everything in the spring, the fertilizers, the chemicals, the plants. Yeah, sure. Well, I probably would have imagined that the grower in Lima, Peru is producing the roses and then has maybe an agreement with a supermarket. I was going to say a specific supermarket, but (laughs) I've lived in three regions of the United States. I know how regional supermarkets are. (laughs) So I'll say it and and lose people. That's not really so I, you know, like bananas, bananas must get sold to, you know, to these markets through a specific channel. And I would expect it to be somewhat direct, but flowers, not necessarily. So there's a whole market associated with the sale of cut flowers. Right. So if we ever, you know, happen to find yourself in the Netherlands, there's the world's largest flower auction there which is called Allsmere, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is right near the airport. And so it's, yeah, it's fascinating to see there's, it's bidding. So it's imagine like a giant clock. It starts out with the highest bidder and then it works backwards. And this, these clock hands go around and around. It's a stadium of people like you'd find on a commodities market. And they're, they're all basically bidding on these, on these plants. And the plants are come out there's a it's like a small train of these carts so it could be a whole cart of roses or poinsettias or christmas cactus and there'd be people in other parts of the world that would also be electronically bidding so those might have come from south america overnight to the netherlands at four in the morning it's coming wheeling out seven in the morning people are bidding on it eight in the morning those are going back on a plane to new york city or south africa or england the intensity of this is just sort of blowing my mind. Like I can't imagine, it's sometimes just surprising to me the level of organization that human beings are capable of. Like who thought of this and how did it get started? So it's like very how do they organized. keep track of it all? Yeah. And so some of these cutting plants, that would be the case. It would be like a lot. It would be 
you know, 4,000 cut branches of red twig dogwood. That would come out on 10 carts. And somebody that's in a certain part of the world would be bidding on that. And they would really want that. And that would, it might be a supermarket in the United States. And they're, you know, buying for like, like a Wegmans is a, is a Rochester, New York, you know, one of the favorite supermarket. So somebody in Wegmans is probably connected to this flower market and they're buying on a large scale. But even on, even on small scales, there's re-wholesalers. So somebody, if you weren't a big buyer, there might be a re-wholesaler within your state. Like in South Carolina, maybe there's a re-wholesaler. They're bidding and it comes to Charleston and then they distribute to florists, to supermarkets, to your local nursery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. So that would be true for, I mean, weddings, other holidays, flowers are such a big part. Anniversaries, maybe not even holiday specific, but sort of like celebration specific. Mm-hmm. So cut flowers are such a, a big part of our celebrations. And it's fascinating to, to, to really consider where they're grown and how they're grown and then how do they get from one place to the next. And I do think uh, one really charming growing condition or business, I suppose, is the cut flower business. That doesn't make sense. We just talked about cut flowers. The like farms that actually grow a variety of wildflowers and you can visit and cut your own flowers for something like a wedding or a celebration. I mean, that's, I've just seen them, you know, when I was doing my wedding planning for myself, like it's just such a charming kind of local, again, somewhat sustainable, supporting probably a small local business way of celebrating a holiday or a, or a celebration in a new way. Yeah, I think, you know, like they say, act locally, think globally, that when you're, when I purchase something at, at a store, I might fall in love with the flower, the plant. And, but is that like going on an airplane, you know, around the world or a ship? So that's not necessarily good or bad. I mean, that's not good for the environment. So you have to make conscious choices. There's local growers. There's always ways of starting a new tradition. Maybe I've always done a certain way, but just to think, is that how do I want to be voting with my money, so to speak, you know, with a certain way without getting political, but, <laughs> but to support local businesses. And there's more and more farmers, regional businesses, which are going sort of back to the roots, you know, growing wildflowers, growing cuttings, and that it really is full circle. There's a very large suppliers, but then within communities, there's local people that are producing exciting, you know, beautiful plants. And it might be from, from their tradition of origin, which might be different, you know. Well, one one item to wrap up on one of the one of the plants that I am really enamored of in terms of its appearance during festivities is the marigold. You know, and when I was growing up, I always thought of it as a humble plant because it was one of the few flowers that I could sustain in our little I think cosmos and marigolds <laughs> were what I could grow in my little patch at home uh, under my mother's tutelage, and marigolds are a part of the tradition in Mexico, Dia de los Muertos, and then Diwali in India. So some of this travel, you know, although flowers are now getting on the airplanes and flying around the world, apparently, there are sort of plant traditions that are kind of shared around the world, like maybe Mm -hmm. for a different celebration, but the plant itself is special to people for many reasons all over. And you know, maybe that's a part of our consideration when we're designing a landscape. Do we just want things that are aesthetically significant or would it be special to, you were saying the white pine has 
this special significance for Native Americans in this country and bringing in, yeah, I guess I'll say it like the spiritual aspect mm-hmm. to our to our landscapes and right. and incorporating that in what we're planting. Yeah, to be mindful. I mean, the marigold is one of the easiest plant, one of the easiest flowering plants in a temperate. It's it's so easy to grow. Remember, there's we mentioned that garden before, Untermeyer Gardens, which is in Yonkers. It's a Persian walled garden. It was an estate. It's been a public garden for a number of years. And so their annual plantings, there's perennials and shrubs, but then there's always these, these channel gardens, long, like you find in a Persian garden, water fountains. And there's annuals planted along those. And so the, I mean, there's, I guess there's plant snobism. You know, there's like, if you're a serious designer, oh, I wouldn't use that. I don't necessarily believe in that. But so a marigold is not a sophisticated plant. And one year they used only marigolds and it was so innovative. There's no status for a plant. It's all just human, just in our imagination. So it's really, they inventively used, it was many different varieties of marigolds. So with good design, it can make the old new and it's easy to grow. It looks great for the whole, whole warm season. And so it's a great plant to, to like to plant with children. They're going to, it's going it's, it's to succeed. <laughs> yes. We're just about at the end of our time today. It was just sort of a fun episode, a little bit of an experiment because we were branching out and, and discussing some traditions. We don't necessarily know firsthand, but we wanted to think about the plants that are, you know, valued by human beings the world over. So if you enjoyed the episode, feel free to connect with us. We're on Facebook at In the Landscape. We're going to post, I think I'll post some photos of us cutting down Christmas trees All right. <laughs> in upstate New York. So head over to Facebook and connect with us there. You can take a look at with Charles. our mascot. Yeah, our, our little cocker spaniel in tow and share with us your photos and holiday traditions and correct us if we deserve corrections. We're always happy to receive that. You can always rate and review us if you enjoy what you hear. We certainly welcome that. We have some really exciting developments on our own website, kinggardeninc.com. If you go there, you can find the podcast, podcast show notes. We're still working on transcripts. We really want that to be available to anyone who would like to read what we're talking about. Um, We know that's useful for many people. We're just getting caught up there. So we also have the first of our online courses that we've unveiled. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a beginner's course for how to read the different labels that you might encounter in the landscape to, to give your garden the best chance of success. It was developed with the support of a biology professor, so the science is really strong. We hope you'll go to kinggardeninc.com forward slash landscape dash courses. That'd be a good way to find it, but you can also find it if you noodle around on the site. You can take a look at what we're offering. We have some other courses on boxwood pruning coming out in the spring. That should be comprehensive with videos and guides and kind of a how-to if boxwood is your thing. Mm-hmm. You know it's ours. <laughs> so we're always spreading the boxwood love. And some other courses that we'll continue to develop. So if you want to go a little more in-depth beyond just hearing us chatter with each other about the landscape and you'd like to learn a little bit more, maybe check it out and see if it's for you. And uh, we would certainly welcome feedback there as well. Anything else to say in this episode before we go? Well, you know, I always like to say, keep an open mind to embracing, we're embracing some of the traditions in Texas and we still spend time in the Northeast too. So in a new area, there's often new traditions, which is fun to, you know, going to local holiday festivals and, and then, you know, just with the, 
migration of people and cultures, there's often a festival. So that's always fun. You know, seeing how does another culture celebrate the food, the plants that are associated with that. There's more similarities than there are differences, I, I find, actually. <laughs> Great. Well, we hope you have a wonderful holiday season, whatever you celebrate and whenever it comes. And of course, the coming back of the sun when it reaches us. And uh, we know in the Southern Hemisphere, that's it's tipped on its head. But uh, we h- hope to hear more about the traditions around the world. And we hope that you can incorporate your landscape in those traditions in a way that's satisfying and meaningful to you. So... Until next time, thank you. Thank you. 